0: Well, i'd like you to think back this evening to the hardest season of your life to date uh, maybe it's not a case of of thinking back because you're living it uh, this pandemic has turned your world upside down maybe you've lost your job uh, heard the news of a friend who has contracted the disease or are just finding this whole social isolation business and and various restrictions incredibly isolating. Uh, Our lives have changed, haven't they? Uh, For some of us, drastically so. And for others, we uh, may not uh, want to think about it, but uh, the worst may be yet to come. Not too long ago, I came across the story of a Portuguese explorer named Bartholomew Diaz, Uh, who in 1488 became the first European to safely navigate a dangerous point on the southern coast of Africa. Uh, For many years, nobody knew what lay beyond that cape. No ship attempting to pass that point had ever returned to tell the tale. But in spite of near death, uh, this man managed to make it out alive. And to reflect the nature of the journey, he named that Cape, the Cape of Storms. But a century later, it was renamed the Cape of Good Hope because of uh, the trade route into India that this Cape would provide. Beyond that wild and that stormy coast laid a calm sea. And when I think of that story, I think that it is a wonderful picture of what life can sometimes feel like. Life can, can feel like a cape of storms. Uh, and yet with Christ in the vessel, we can smile at the storm. We can uh, see life as a cape of good hope. And that is the sense of what I would like us to consider uh, this evening as we turn to Lamentations chapter 3, uh, a chapter that provides us with perspective. And we do indeed need those uh, final few verses uh, that I read to you uh, at the beginning just then. This is a chapter that doesn't sugarcoat suffering. It doesn't teach us to to exercise the power of positive thinking. Uh, it doesn't teach us to pretend uh, that problems don't exist. Uh, but rather, it, it faces up to reality, doesn't it? In fact, the very title of the book is an open and an honest summary of what it contains. This is the book of Lamentations. Uh, Perhaps you know that the word lament uh, means really two things. On the one hand, it means to cry aloud and to shed tears over sin and its consequences. But on the other hand, it means to relentlessly trust in God we hear those things and we think that they are mutually exclusive and yet they're really two sides of the same coin you see it throughout the old testament lamenting is the characteristic posture of believers as they wait for the coming messiah and by way of context the speaker here in this chapter uh, who is most likely to be uh, as we've heard already this evening jeremiah Uh, is lamenting in the aftermath of the defeat of the holy city Jerusalem and the exile of Judah in 587 BC. Uh, This is the lowest point in the history of the Old Covenant community. These people are in Babylonian captivity, and their sufferings are described here in terms of one single individual. Instead of getting that wide-angle lens In chapter 3, we are zoomed in on a man whose speech represents the rest of the people. And here, Jeremiah, who is also known as the weeping prophet, now sits in the ashes of a ruined city. And as one preacher put it, he essentially sings the blues. The book of Lamentations includes a series of five funeral poems and yet in this third poem, Jeremiah seems to combine tragedy with triumph. He, he blends hurt with hope. He brings us face to face with the hardships and the heartbreaks of life and he places them side by side with the great faithfulness of God. Now where do we usually find a punchline? If I was uh, to tell you a joke, uh, the punchline would be at the end, wouldn't it? It would be the final note. And yet that is not the case through much of the Old Testament. In in Hebrew poetry, it is actually the middle where we get the punchline. And so as we move into Lamentations chapter 3, which is the middle of the book, uh, we also note that it is in the middle of this chapter that we find the treasure. Although uh, echoes of doom and gloom reverberate throughout the book, we also get this glimpse of hope along the way. And that really is the reality of suffering. There are moments of sweet relief that seem to break the silence of suffering, but, but often uh, we have to admit from our own experience that these moments are, are few and far between. And this book exemplifies such an experience. Uh, For those who suffer, uh, there are highs and lows. There are times when God feels very near to us, and there are times when he feels very far off. And yet throughout this journey, there is this contrast being made between uh, the tears of the unbeliever and the tears of the one who truly trusts in the Lord. Well, before we call to mind the exceedingly hopeful confession, uh, I want us to step back and acknowledge in verses 1 to 18, the seemingly hopeless complaints, the hopeless complaints. It'd be very easy for us to to skip over to verses 22 and onwards to, to kind of jump right in and sing, great is thy faithfulness, as we've sung already this evening. But I want us firstly to hold off so we can look at the context that sits behind this great statement. What is it that prompts such a declaration? Because before we see a man who has experienced God's faithfulness, we see a man who has endured suffering. This is a man who has come to a dead end spiritually. You see, there's nothing low key about Jeremiah's complaint, is there? He, he doesn't minimize his sufferings. He doesn't play it down. No, in verse one, he, he begins with clarity and transparency. I am the man who has seen affliction. It's not an observational, uh, but it is an experiential statement. I am the man. In other words, this is my personal story. This is my identity. Jeremiah's life—it it has really gone from bad to worse, and the way he feels, it cannot be condensed to just one line. He could have uh, finished at "I have seen affliction" and quickly transitioned into this great statement. But God is faithful, but He doesn't do that. He takes time to to spell it out. He he fills in the details. He gives this comprehensive summary of all of the ways that He has been. At the receiving end of suffering. And we have all the way down to verse 18 this sustained series of cries, this catalogue of miseries, both physically and spiritually. This is a man who has been shaken by the storms of life. This dark cloud of depression is hanging over him. He's in a, a period that the Puritans would once refer to as the darkness of the soul. Trace the theme all the way down the page. Please do have your Bibles open to those first 18 verses of Lamentations 3 and and, and follow with me all the way down from verse 1. I am under the rod of his wrath in Psalm 23, uh, which is uh, one of our favorite psalms. It's one of the most famous psalms. It speaks about uh, the rod of the shepherd that brings comfort to the sheep. And yet here the rod is identified as an instrument of pain. It's the rod of his wrath. But then verse 2, he goes on to say, I am walking in darkness. Verse 3, I get the back of God's hand. Verse 4, my flesh is, is wasting and my and my bones are broken. Verse 5, I am sieged and surrounded. Verse 7, I am hedged in and trapped. Again, my my chains are heavy. Verse 8, my prayers are blanked. Verse 9, my ways are blocked and my paths are crooked. Verse 10, I am ambushed by a waiting bear and a crouching lion. Verse 11, I am torn to pieces. Verse 12, I'm a walking target to God's arrows. Verse 14, I am mocked and taunted by enemies. Verse 15, I am made to drink a cup of wormwood. I discovered as I was preparing for this message that that was an acidic drink that would have left a a bitter aftertaste in the mouth. Verse 16 my my teeth grind on gravel and I am covered in ashes. Verse 17 I have no peace or prosperity. And then after using a variety of expressions to get his point across here is the bottom line in verse 18 I am devoid of strength and absent Of hope. I wonder how you feel as you work your way down that depressing list of trials. Uh, I read through this for the first time and I was shocked that God chose to use and include something like this in the Bible. Uh, These verses, as much as we like, might like them to be that they're, they're not typos they're not misprints we can't airbrush them out we can't shrug them off we can't brush them under the carpet all scripture is god breathed and this is as much as the great texts like psalm 23 and john three sixteen. this is a divinely inspired passage for some of us that that might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable but i'm sure for others, particularly for those who have suffered, you take consolation. And why is that? And I, well, I, th- I think it's because your present experience may look something like the sufferings that are listed here. You see, the prophet Jeremiah—he's not bottling up his issues, but he's giving us a window into his heart. It's a, a very un-British thing to do, isn't it? Culturally, we we don't do very well at showing our weaknesses. We we have uh, the the stiff upper lip. My wife hates it. She's not from around here, and she doesn't understand why we can't just kind of let it all out sometimes. But that's not what we see here. This man is is not afraid to show his tears. He's not ashamed to show that he's hurting. He says, I feel alone. I feel isolated. I feel cut off. And one of the applications, I believe, of this entire book of Lamentations is simply to say that at times, It is right and it is appropriate to come before God and to offload and to say, Lord, I am hurting. This chapter allows us to vocalize the reality of pain. Is that something that you struggle with this evening? Do you like to keep up the appearances? Do you like to give off this impression that you're all put together, that you never struggle with anything? Well, if you are like that, you need to take notes from from this passage, because we must be, as believers in Christ, transparent. We must be willing to, to share our burdens. We must not suffer in silence. But notice how Jeremiah singles out God, not the Babylonians as the reason for his affliction. It's not only my enemies, he's saying, but it is the heat of the anger of God. God doesn't feel like a friend to me. I have a look at the opening words of many of these verses the finger is pointed at God he he has done this to me look at verse 8 even when i cry and when i shout he shuts out my prayer this is supposed to be the prayer answering god and the door to his throne room is closed this is my refuge this is my help this is my security but verse 10 he's a bear and he's lying in wait for me he's a lion he's in ambush and he's torn me to pieces these are graphic pictures aren't they friends where's the mercy where's the grace well you see the whole point of the exile of judah was as a result of their unrepentant sin and idolatry this was self-inflicted discipline now i'm not for a moment equating all of our sufferings as the result of our sin now you think of job the most righteous man on the face of the earth at that time and yet By God's permission, he became the victim of the most severe kinds of satanic attacks. But that is not the case for the people of Judah. They are being chastened by God. And as Jeremiah, who is part of that community, experiences discipline, it's as if the light at the end of the tunnel has been switched off and everything is black. You know, throughout the Bible, God's hand is often used as Uh, A metaphor for his rescuing power, like when he delivers the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt. However, here, God's hand is repeatedly against the people. Instead of liberating him, Jeremiah feels imprisoned by God. You can kind of sense, can't you, the panic in his voice as he writes these things. And I wonder, does this honesty strike any chords in your own heart and experience? Has this virus, or at least the repercussions of it, has it made you feel as if God is against you? Well, though Jeremiah feels battered and bruised, he's not alone, is he? Most of the Psalms, they're, they're punctuated with pain. Most of the New Testament epistles, they were written in prisons. Most of the greatest preachers in the history of the world had to pass through fire. You just pick up your church history books and there's no shortage of examples, are there? You see, for a Christian, suffering is to be expected. It's a shared experience. And the gospel that we profess is not one of earthly prosperity, but of sacrificial, sometimes gut-wrenching suffering for the sake of Christ. We are not like those uh, health and wealth preachers in the world today. And you can find them on YouTube. They're everywhere, aren't they? they? They they tell you that if you come to Christ, life will be smooth and easy. And you kind of think to yourself, have they, have they read a book like Lamentations? Because lamentations doesn't teach that if you're undergoing pain, then you kind of just shrug your shoulders and live with it. As Christians, we don't go around telling everyone to just have a more optimistic outlook on life, to always look on the bright side or or to man up. No, Christians, we're, we're not ostriches. We don't bury our heads in the sand. We recognize because we see it all around us that hurt is real. And there is a place for lamenting in the Christian life. I love the fact that uh, the shortest verse in the English translation is two words. Jesus wept as he saw the destructive effects of sin in this world. He wept as he as he considered his dear friend Lazarus lying there in the tomb. He felt something about it. He wasn't aloof. He wasn't indifferent, but he wept. Or as he weighed up the cost of the cross and the agony of Calvary in the garden before he died, what does it say? He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He's lamenting. And so let me encourage you in a sense that the proper lamenting is Christlike. And we see that here in the first half of Lamentations chapter three, Jeremiah The man who has seen affliction has poured out his heart to God in laments. All of his hope seems shattered. But verse 21 is where the passage hinges. And I'm so thankful that although Mark stopped at verse 21, that the Bible goes on, because as we move into uh, this second point from a hopeless complaint, we see a hopeful confession. A hopeful confession. All Jeremiah could see at this point was a cape of storms. But then his perspective wonderfully changes and a ray of hope cuts through the darkness in verse 21. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Uh, The heartbeat of lamentations is encapsulated in these few verses. They are the climactic point of the book. We've been going through some dark valleys through verses 1 to 18, but now we've kind of reached the summit. And and what a view we have here as Jeremiah displays for us the beautiful landscape of God's goodness against the dark backdrop of our sufferings. Uh, The great Uh, theologian John Calvin says that it is in the darkness of our miseries that the grace of God shines the more brightly. And that is what we're seeing here. Verse 21 refers to the thought process of the mind. Jeremiah moves from introspection, self-analysis to God, and his lament turns to hope. Our passage here seems, seems nothing short of hopeless, does it? And yet there is this but moment i love the word but in the bible it's always a kind of key change but this i call to mind and therefore i have hope when coronavirus leaves you feeling discouraged and downcast and depressed call to mind the promises of scripture Talk to yourself, bring scripture into view. That's actually what meditation really is. When we think of meditation, we think of perhaps a a Near Eastern man and he's kind of doing this with his hands and he's got his legs crossed and he's emptying his mind. And that's actually the total opposite of how the Bible speaks about meditation. Meditation is not about emptying your mind, but filling your mind It's about talking to yourself. It's about bringing scripture to bear upon your circumstances, telling yourself what god has told you in his word and the the three truths that that follow this word but they tell us something about the character of god and that's what i want to do just for the remainder of our time to call to mind the steadfast love the mercy and the faithfulness of god this is the diamond in the rough you see jeremiah's circumstances have changed He has not yet been liberated from exile. He's not been delivered from his trial. And yet he is cognitively in his mind already in that cape of good hope. His whole perspective has shifted as he lifts his eyes and he looks from his sad condition to the great faithfulness of God. This is the turning point for this man. I think the quotation from Psalm 30 verse 5 fits the theme of this chapter. It says to us, weeping may last through the night, but joy comes with the morning. I like the story that is told of a father who took his son to a town parade, but the boy, he couldn't see what was going on in the streets because of the large crowd. And so his father, he looked down at his teary-eyed son and he scooped him up onto his shoulders. And now from his new seat the boy's eyes uh, so the boy's tears turned to joy and on a far greater scale this will be the experience of of every child of god with with god as our father and we as his children our perspective all changes doesn't it though we weep now joy comes with the morning do you do you lack hope today do you lack hope this this evening Has this past year, with all of its various bumps, has it caused you to forget the goodness of God? Well, let me challenge you to look and then grasp verses 22 and 23. First, God's love is steadfast. God's love is steadfast. Uh, Jeremiah's hope is, is firmly rooted in who God is and how God acts towards us. Uh, The the beginning clause of verse 22 here says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Uh, The phrase that is used here is one of, uh, if not the greatest words in the Old Testament. It is the Hebrew word, What's the word? <laughs> I've forgotten. It's, it's gone out of my mind. I haven't read it in, in my notes. But it's a, it's, a, it's a great word, which means loyal love. I'd only be showing off if I told you. So it's good that I've forgotten. It, it, it's God's covenant keeping love, God's God's purposeful love. And as an Old Testament Jew, Jeremiah was all too familiar with this divine covenant, this, this purposeful, loyal covenant keeping love. It was what motivated him. It was a covenant that was first made with Abraham. The record had been consistently passed down the generations and in the depths of his depression, that is the first truth that brings comfort to Jeremiah's troubled soul. He calls this to mind. He reminds himself that in covenant love, God has pledged that he would be their God and they would be his people. And therefore, he's going to be preserved. God is not going to abandon him in his pain. But you know the covenant that God made with Israel, he he makes with you and me this evening. We are here today. We're alive and well because God's love never once ceased. He is not a cold-blooded God. He sometimes allows us to taste the consequences of our rebellion, but his love is steadfast. It, it doesn't fail us in our darkest hour and in our time of deepest need. It is not a circumstantial, but it is a dependable love. I heard the story of a man who was shipwrecked at sea, and the whole crew had been tragically lost, but he had providentially been washed up on the rocks, and and there he stayed all night long. Although his strength had almost vanished, though his hope had almost faded, He somehow found the strength to cling to the rocks for dear life. And at sunrise, as the rescue unit was desperately searching for survivors, they found this one resilient and shivering man in the midst of the sea. And they quickly pulled him to safety and they quizzed him about his ordeal. And the man replied, he said, as I shivered and wept all night and wondered whether I would ever make it through. The rock never moved. That's the reason for our hope. That's the believer's perspective in pain. When we're in the darkness of the night and we feel as though we're simply clinging to the rocks, we we call this to mind, don't we? That the morning light is coming. Rescue is on its way. God's love for us is steadfast and therefore we will be pulled to heavenly shores where our song will be the testimony of that lone survivor, The Rock Never Moved. But things are taken a step further. As the writer approaches verse 22, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. That's the second thing that I want us to see, that God's mercies are unfailing. I love that one of the defining marks of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ is that he showed mercy to sinners. The the disabled, the despised, the disappointments of society, they found an abundant supply of mercy in the person of Jesus Christ. And in verses 22 to 23, Jeremiah has kind of grasped something about God that so many seem to forget in their sufferings. And that is that God's mercies, plural, are both novel and constant. They are new and they are there every morning. When we got out of bed this morning, we were immediately presented with a new opportunity to experience a fresh outpouring of God's mercy. You think back to, to, to how God provided manna for the Israelites as they as they wandered through the wilderness and how he specifically instructed them. Don't carry over the bread to the next day because I'm going to provide for you fresh bread every single morning. And that is the experience of every Christian believer spiritually. We don't need to join the rest of the nation in in kind of panic buying. Do you remember when they were doing that for toilet rolls and tinned food and they were kind of stocking up their cupboards with these things? We don't need to be like that as Christians spiritually. No, God always has and God always will provide. There's nothing stingy about God. He doesn't dish out these mercies on a teaspoon. He, He lavishes them upon us. They're new every morning. And so we don't we don't need to live off yesterday's love and mercy. Now each and every single day of our lives, we're, we're topped up to the full, to so the point that we say along with the psalmist, "My cup overflows." Who in the world could make you an offer like this? You see, people change their their promises can be broken, but not our God. His steadfast love and his mercies they endure for all time. They don't they don't fluctuate and and rise and fall, but They they are constant. They are are steadfast. They are dependable. But then finally, we we come to the bottom line of verse 23. And here is that great statement. Great is your faithfulness. That's the third and the final thing that I want us to see. God's faithfulness is great. God's faithfulness is great. Notice how in that same verse, Jeremiah shifts from, from speaking about God to speaking directly to God. And, and when he says faithfulness, he simply means if, if God said it, he will do it. I remember uh, reading as a boy in the opening page of an elderly man's Bible in my church, this great statement that, that somehow has kind of stuck with me all the way through. I'm 26 now and I'm still thinking about it. It's the, it's the phrase, never doubt in the dark what you know to be true in the light. Never doubt in the dark what you know to be true in the light. Maybe, maybe you and I, we've grasped God's faithfulness before, but now we've become skeptical in the darkness. On the good days, we get it, but on the bad days, we forget it. But can you sing in any and every circumstance the, the words of the weeping prophet, great is your faithfulness? Does, does that thrill your heart when you think about the faithfulness of God? A couple of years ago, I was I was in Paris and uh, I went there after my wife had been nagging me. We've got to go there. We've got to go there. And finally, we went there. And and the first thing that you do when you arrive in Paris, we all know, don't we? uh, It's straight to the Eiffel Tower. And I remember as we stood with the tower kind of looming over us and thousands of sightseers surrounding us. Everybody had their cameras out. Everybody was fighting for the best spots to get their photos. It really wasn't much of a challenge to spot the tourists. I remember that, but I'll I'll never forget a brief conversation that I had on the steps with an old man who was selling miniature Eiffel Tower models. And he said to me, when you've been here for 25 years, the excitement soon wears off. For him, it was only his employment that kept him there day in, day out. There he was, same place, same posture, his back Turned away from the very thing that everybody else was staring at. He'd seen it a million times and he'd grown accustomed to its beauty. And the wonder was well and truly gone. And and I think this evening it would be a real tragedy if that was true of us with God. That we kind of lost our wonder or we grew accustomed to his love or over familiar with his mercies or unmoved by his great faithfulness towards us, that our mouths, they stop singing and our hearts grow cold within us. that would be a tragedy. Christian believer, wherever, wherever you are, as you sit to listen this evening, I challenge you to call this to mind in, the, in the midst of these days of difficulty. These are not psychological tricks to kind of help us through the darkness of grief These are not abstract theological doctrines to be approved of, but they are anchors for the soul that we cling to as we sail through the Cape of Storms. The solution for Jeremiah is really the solution for each of us. His perspective is the perspective that we must take as we encounter pain and hardships. I am the man who has seen affliction. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope.